0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 11,
1: verses 12 through 26, with Pastor John King. All right, folks. Well, again, it's wel- welcome back for several of you. Uh, it's good to see you guys here again after a while. It's, it's been a tough awakening for the church and for our society. and You know, there's uh, bumps in the road, that's for sure, aren't there? <laughs> uh, but uh Today, we're going to continue on. We're in Mark chapter 11. We're going to be covering verses 12 through 26. Verses 12 through 26 in chapter 11 of Mark. So while you're turning there, we're going to do a quick review from last week. Last week, we, of course, continued our journey with Jesus, his disciples. And at this point, there was a multitude as they entered and departed Jericho for Jerusalem. And this was the last recorded healing miracle in Mark's chapter, Mark's uh, gospel. And that was of blind Bartimaeus. His cry for mercy was heard by Jesus despite the attempt to silence him. In this encounter, we learn valuable lessons on salvation and discipleship. What's great about the gospel message, the gospel's Is you get to see the interaction between people and Jesus himself. And there's always something to learn. And so here we saw a a great lesson on salvation, the importance of faith and believing that Jesus is the God who he claims to be. Doubts creep in very easily for us. He referred to him, Bartimaeus, as the son of David, he was God in the flesh. Sent to deliver the world from sin and death. If you believe that about Jesus, you're, you're going in the right direction. In fact, he, it says, we re- remember the verse where it says, giving his life as a ransom for many. It always comes back to the gospel. It always comes back to Jesus' sacrifice. And on our part, a personal recognition of our need to be forgiven. That's the, God, that's the basic need for the gospel, a basic thing. Forgiven, forgiven of our sins by his mercy. And by his grace. And this is summed up by the blind man's word. He said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And notice from the the text, it says the result was God's response to faith expressed. God's response to our faith when we express it. So he started out with a personal question. He goes, What do you want me to do for you? And then. He he received, what's very important, was a personal confession. Blind Bartimaeus said, Rabboni, which means master, that I may receive my sight. That was his request. So for Bartimaeus, this was a spiritual and physical healing that took place. Made whole. He was made whole by God's grace. This then led us to a quick lesson on discipleship. Because true conversion will always result in following Jesus. It says that he immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. He was expressing appreciation. When you think about what do I do? Why do I follow Jesus? Well, it's so I can can express my appreciation. Why do I follow Jesus? Because I have a desire to grow spiritually. Why do I follow Jesus? Because I want it to be a faithful testimony and witness for what he's done in my life. The change. It's about the change. It's not about just saying things. So leaving Jericho, we witnessed this this sort of divine precision. Now we're entering into Jerusalem. We're going to spend the rest of the chapter in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. And we see the divine precision of prophetic events. They were all unfolding as Jesus finally approached Jerusalem. For the people in the city the the passover would now they would receive their king there were thousands of people if not millions of people in jerusalem and they were there now to receive their king jesus god and the father and jesus would allow them to publicly declare his messiahship in order to force his demise at the hands of the romans it was a very short-lived celebration Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as they put down clothing and they were cutting palm branches down and laying them at his feet as he rode the donkey like a royal carpet. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There were no wine and cheese parties. There wasn't a fancy reception afterwards. It came just as quickly as he came in, just as it was prophesied by Zechariah nine nine. Jesus came in on a donkey, not a war horse. He came sinless, but he came having salvation, in other words, offering salvation to those who would follow him and receive him. He came in peace, riding on a humble service animal, totally opposite of their expectations, yet fully in line with prophetic scripture. So today we will join Jesus as he returns the very next day to Jerusalem, and we'll witness how the Lord addresses the sad spiritual... To see, despite, despite the celebration, the nation Israel and the city of Jerusalem was in a very sad spiritual condition. And so he's gonna, we're going to see two, we're going to witness two very symbolic acts. You may be familiar with them. We're going to witness the withering of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, his second cleansing of the temple, if you will. One one act is very obvious, it's very straightforward what he's doing, but the other one's going to require that the Lord explain it to us, provide us with more detail and some valuable lessons. If you're taking notes today, we're going to learn about lessons on failure and lessons on faith. So follow along with me as we read our passage for today. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 26. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent, excuse me, wrong, wrong scripture. Uh, Let's go to verse 12. Sorry. Now, the next day, when they, I was just checking to see, you guys are good, I'm telling you. Better than me. See, anybody can do this, by the way. Just so you know. You thought there was something special behind the curtain, but it was just me. Just little old me. So. Uh, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit now. Now, the next day, when he had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if it perhaps would have some, or he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Make note of that. So they came to Jerusalem when Jesus went into the temple, and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturn the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots, and Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and it does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for our time now. We're we're, we're with you now, once again. We're back on the road with you. We're following your footsteps, once again, as recorded here in, in your scriptures. And Lord, I just ask that you would set our minds and our hearts for what's going on here. That you would open our hearts and minds for anything that you want to say to us. That in your still small voice, how you want to speak to us, Lord, through your words here on your scriptures. However which way, Lord, please have your way with us. We know we can never go wrong when we're willing and open to receive from you. Let us be ready for you to speak to us today. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen. So a little bit more background. Uh, When Jesus came into Jerusalem for what is referred to as the triumphal entry, what we covered last week, he was applauded and he was attended to. And as we said earlier, God was allowing a moment in time to show a little glimpse of the future return of the king. At Jesus' second coming, we read in Philippians two ten and 11, that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But as we saw last week, Jesus went directly to the temple. There was no banquet of wine. There was no formal reception dinner party with all the prominent religious and socialites and leaders, movers and shakers in society, as, as would normally happen, as we see happening all, all the time when, you know, a king is received or somebody's installed into office. Now, Jesus immediately applied himself to his work. And he would enter the temple and take notes. So if that was last night, it would be this morning. Last night he went into the temple after a very long day, and then this morning he would have come back with his disciples. Now the fact that he was coming and had done this, and what he's about to do, was also prophetic. Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord... "...whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand it when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver." He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer the Lord an offering in righteousness. Jesus is going to come in judgment. You see, we we mentioned it, but it's now changing very rapidly. He's going to focus entirely on his messiahship from here on out. And eventually, you know, it's going to push the buttons of those who are going to wipe him out. They said, they, they, we've, got, we've got to get rid of this guy. He's causing far too much problem for the Jews, far too much upheaval for the Romans. The Jews are jealous of the fact that when he does speak, remember when Jesus teaches, everybody wants to hear what he has to say because he has such a command of the scriptures and he's speaking as God incarnate. And that bothers those religious leaders, terribly. And it makes the Romans very nervous. Now, this segment of Mark's narrative, we've talked about this kind of technique, if you will. It's like a sandwich. It's a sandwich of stories. First, we're going to see Jesus cursing the fig tree. And then he's going to cleanse the temple. And then the disciples are going to notice the fig tree. And that all is kind of a backdrop to what he's going to explain a little bit later. Sort of an object lesson. So let's look at the first part of the sandwich, if you will. Jesus curses the fig tree. Verse 12. And on the next day, when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. Why was he hungry? Possibly he was hungry because he had skipped breakfast. Because remember, he was staying at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He was their guest. And remember, the thing about the Lord is this. He often got up super early in the morning. Remember, we said way before the sun rises. And this was a very important day. So chances are very good that Jesus got up super early in the morning to pray. To pray to the Father. And so now they're on the road. They're coming out of Bethany. And we're reminded of something very important. Jesus Christ is fully God, but he's also fully man. How do we know? Well, we know because all through the scriptures we see it demonstrated that he had the traits of a human. He was tempted. He experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He ate and drank with others. He became tired and he had to sleep. But it's all for our good. That's such an amazing thing. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, you and I, He too shared in their humanity, our humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus, one of his main purposes was to come and to destroy the works of the devil. And Lord, we pray you come back again. Will You just come and just do your business once again. You've left us here, Lord, and you haven't left us hopeless or helpless. But I think some of us, many of us are ready for you to come and, and really wipe him out this time. Verse 13, After seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something to eat on. It. remember he was hungry. And so from a distance he sees this beautiful fig trees. Uh, we're growing two beautiful, well they're not beautiful yet. we got these little fig trees on our side yard. And I've, I'm afraid we planted them too close together because I'm told they get really big. Anyway, he saw these beautiful fig trees that were full of leaves. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Because it was not the season for figs. Now, this is, this is kind of interesting. He, he found nothing but leaves. In other words, the closer inspection revealed only leaves. But from a distance, it looked really nice. Like that would be a place where I could get something to eat. But it was not the season for figs. Mark goes, you know, not to great lengths, but he makes sure to point out what season it is. Normally, figs would be harvested later in the summer, and this was here early in the spring. Even though ripe figs would not be expected, there would be early buds of the fruit that was considered edible. But the tree was barren. Even though it had plenty of leaves, the absence of even the beginning of the fruit meant that basically it was a worthless plant. It wasn't going to produce what it was created to produce, at least not that season. But Mark, again, he makes note of the season for the symbolic action that it takes place. Now, in response, Jesus speaks to the tree. He says, let no one eat the fruit from you ever again. Why did he pronounce a curse on the tree? I mean, this is what he did. He pronounced a curse on the tree. He didn't need to use Roundup. He just spoke it. <laughs> Matthew says it withered right then and there, dried up from the roots, right, right there. And uh, why did he do that? Was it because he was angry? Because he didn't get some food? Well, I mean, that would be foolish. And our Lord is not foolish, and He is not childish, and He's not selfish. The main reason He did it was so that He could teach His disciples. Because we see right after, and his disciples heard it. It was for their benefit. He doesn't waste a moment, he doesn't waste any time. Everything the Lord did had a purpose and a plan. One writer put it this way He said, Mark made sure that the reader knew that all the disciples heard Jesus pronounce judgment upon the fig tree, they understood the symbolism because the fig tree had long been a symbol of Israel's peace and security. So Jesus' curse upon it meant that Israel would not again be the primary instrument of accomplishing God's purpose. We'll, We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But what we have here for us and for them at the time was a symbolic metaphor between a fig tree and the nation Israel. In the Old Testament, the nation Israel is frequently compared to a fruitless fig tree. A couple of scriptures. Jeremiah 8.13. It says, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grape shall be on the vine, nor figs in the fig tree. And the leaf shall fade, and those things I have given them shall pass away from them. Or Hosea 9.10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame, idol worship. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. So like the fig tree, our Lord cursed Israel because it had nothing but leaves. Or excuse me, like the fig tree that I, uh, excuse me, Like the fig tree that Israel, that that the Lord cursed. Comparison. The nation Israel had become nothing but leaves. They were very religious. They were very, you know, full of pomp and circumstance. But the tree itself, now this is a comparison from the tree to the nation Israel, it dried up at the roots. Three years beforehand, you remember, John the Baptist, when he came, when he first came, he put an axe to the roots of this tree, this nation Israel. Matthew 3.10 says, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Warren Weersby wrote this, but the religious leaders would not heed the message. Whenever an individual or group dries up spiritually, it is usually from the roots. So what we're saying here is when you see somebody who is deconstructing their faith, very common in today's world, losing their religion, their Christianity, believing the lies that they may have learned in college or maybe even high school nowadays or from the internet. That their faith is phony, that it's not real, it's a myth. They start to dry up from the roots. They de- deconstruct. Now, thankfully, there are many who have testimonies now that are, have, have actually reconstructed because they received good counsel. And now they're speaking out about this problem in our nation that was once primarily a Christian nation a long time ago. Dried up at the roots it's chilling when i think about it so we have a spiritual lesson we can we can jump right into it let's talk about the leafy appearance the appearance of being healthy on the outside versus the reality of what it really looks like on the inside that god sees not what we see in each other not our cool hawaiian shirts none of that what does god see in reality in our hearts From a distance, uh, a leafy appearance indicates the appearance of fruit. Like an outward profession of faith. Another believer, you know, praise the Lord. From a distance, the leafy appearance indicates health by a caretaker. God the Father. A profession of faith indicates that a person's sins have been taken care of. From a distance. But close inspection reveals... No fruit, just leaves, resulting in an empty profession. This is not good for a person, and it's not useful for the kingdom of God. Paul writes a couple of letters he wrote to Timothy, a couple of letters he wrote to Titus. And he was referring to these perilous times with perilous men in Second Timothy 3, five having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. Or in Titus 1.16, Paul was referring to insubordinate idol talkers and deceivers. He said, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You know, good on the outside, but not truly So, as one writer would put it, the appearance of full foliage invited inspection. Jesus was hungry for the fruit. When he arrived, he looked, but he found no fruit. And so it is with you and I. Christ craves fruit from men. If he sees a man or a woman profess him, Christ is going to draw near and he's going to inspect. I'm not talking about us inspecting one another, even though we are, we are called to be fruit inspectors. We're not judgment makers. We're not judgment makers. But Jesus will. He will come and he will... If you, if you name Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, guess what? He's going to come and inspect fruit. Because when you profess Christ, you're inviting him to do that. When you say in Jesus' name with a heart of sincerity... In fact, he would probably profess or inspect much, much quicker somebody who professes him as Savior than somebody who doesn't. So be careful what we say. Be careful what you say if we're playing church and you're playing Christianity. Because a professing hypocrite is much more accountable than a non-professing hypocrite here in this life, for sure. And maybe in the next life. So... Jesus, you know, again, we said it's like a sandwich. There's several stories, several layers. So let's go to the next. We're going to go right into the second cleansing of the temple. Verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. It's about two mile walk from Bethany down down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and up to the city. And then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. They had made a business... Out of worship and so now Jesus himself was going to be all business. The night before Jesus looked around at the condition of the temple and today he's going to carry out his planned response. I think we have a picture of the temple. There you have it. There's a graphic of the temple. When you look at that graphic you see in the middle there's a small ornate structure at the center of it. That's a 30-acre that's a property, by the way. And it contains the Holy of Holies. That's the temple right there in the smallest part. We know that it can only be entered by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And then the remainder of the property consisted of four courtyards, as you can see. First, there was the court of the priest. We'll go to the smaller ones first, one very close to the temple. Only the priests were allowed to enter this court. Within the courtyard stood the great furnishings of worship. You've read about the altar of burnt offering, the brazen laver, the seven-branch lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread. That was all located there in the court of the priests right outside of the temple, the very small courtyard in there. Expanding out, you had the courtyard of the Israelites. This was a, a, a huge courtyard where Jewish worshipers met together for joint services on the great feast days. And here they were for Passover, so there were a lot of folks going to gather very close to the temple. It was also where the worshipers handed over their sacrifice to the priests. This is where they brought the animals. You know, this is a massive, uh, massive uh, endeavor. Then you have the court of women, which is the third courtyard. Women were usually limited to this area except for worship. Then they could enter the court of the Israelites, and they could come to make sacrifice or worship in the joint assembly for that day. And that's all within that small, uh, the, you have the small temple there, You probably, I'm sure you can't read the writing, but you have the, the temple, and then you have the small um, fence around it, if you will, and then that big courtyard surrounding it, all that, that's, that's where you and I get to hang out. That's the court of the Gentiles. Now, today, for those who have been to Israel, you've seen pictures, especially recently, we need to pray for the nation Israel because they're getting bombed and rockets being attacked thousands of them. But anyway, sits, what sits on that Temple Mount now is the Dome of the Rock because that temple and all that area was destroyed in A.D. 70 by Emperor, I think, Hadrian and when he sieged Jerusalem. That's part of God's judgment on the nation Israel that he allowed to happen. But the court of the Gentiles was the last courtyard. It covered a very vast space. Remember, we're talking 30 acres. And it was a place for worship for all Gentile converts to Judaism. They were converted. They were proselytes. So when Jesus entered the temple... It was at the court of the Gentiles. He came in in that big area. And it was in this court, which was the center of his anger. Now, why was Jesus angry? Well, you remember from, if you recall, in John's gospel, the first cleansing of the temple was recorded in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. It reads this way. It says, now, the Passover of the Jews, this was the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it's only recorded in John. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who had sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers', the, the changers money and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of of merchandise. And so likewise here in our passage, we see he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. The money changers. Those were the because of the uh, pilgrims attending this feast, they needed to exchange their foreign currency. Remember, they came from all around the region. They were Greek citizens, they were you know some Roman citizens. They came from all around and they had different forms of currency. Most likely it would have been the vile symbol of Caesar on it. Well you weren't going to pass that coinage, you weren't going to pass that currency in the temple. It required a uniform currency that uh, they called the Tyrian shekel and so it had to be exchanged. So that was one part of the business enterprise going on. And then he says those who sold doves you know they sold doves, by god 's allowance for for those who didn 't have a lot of money, they could have a cheaper expense if they didn 't have a means for raising cattle or or you know uh, they they weren't couldn 't purchase a larger animal for their offering, then they could you know offer a dove as a sacrifice offer doves but in order for that animal, whatever you brought, whether you purchased one or you brought it yourself. Uh, the difference was between purchasing and bringing it yourself. If it was had to be fit for sacrifice, it had to be free from illness and physical defect. It had to win the 4-H first place ribbon every time. Okay, you you know you guys have been to the state fair? You should go. NC State's awesome. Those little pigs running around. But in any event, our daughter she did one year. She showed a, a sheep. Those animals need to be of defects and so when you went to sacrifice so many people preferred to go ahead and purchase it on site they're like hey when we get to the festival we'll buy our our uh, sacrifice there out of a convenience because the business that it had become if they brought their animals well now you got to pay to have it inspected and if it didn't pass muster guess what you had no sacrifice now you were out now you paid an inspection fee uh, you brought your car in to be inspected, it failed, or whatever. You paid your inspection fee, and now you've got to buy. You failed, you've got to buy something. So you're out a lot of money. And we joke, but this was a very serious matter to Jesus. Because it caused our Lord to become what he normally wouldn't do. You know, his righteous anger. He, would not, he was not normally known for cracking whips and turning over tables. But God was going to let him know how he felt about this. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, What was happening in the court of the Gentiles was a gross corruption in the name of God. Such an outrage was blasphemy that filled Jesus with holy wrath. Think about what's going on right now in churches. What's going on in denominations. The father's house had been turned into a commerce center where hundreds of thousands of animals and the other items needed for the sacrifices were bought and sold. That's what it was. It was a business. And it would become what some would say a religious market. Let's go to the religious market and we can just, you know, pay our way and have a good time. It was similar to the situation that nearly 1,500 years later, the great reformer Martin Luther would see in Rome when he went. If you ever read Martin Luther's biography uh, by, uh, I think of Eric Metaxas's book, was a great book. It says, I'm not going to be a quote directly, but paraphrasing. It says that when Martin, Martin Luther finally got to this great city of Rome, and remember he was a doctor, he was a, a, a Catholic priest, the city had, fawn, it would, had gone in such disarray that it was filthy and dirty. and it, th- He could see walking around, he could see the guys with the shaved heads, those were the monks. They were basically consorting with prostitutes all out on the open in the streets. These were your priests gathered. The city was overrun with animals and disease. And, and so, you know, here we have a much more serious situation, of course. But you get the picture, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing the temple priests, the money changers, those selling the animals for sacrifice. It was all about the money. You know, we say, follow the money. It was all about the money. Everyone could make a profit off of what God had ordained. Notice in verse 16, not only was he coming in and saying those things and turning over tables, but also he says, it says he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. What does that mean? Aside from laying a heavy hand on the business of religion, the religious enterprise, that 30-acre property that you saw was being used as kind of a shortcut roadway to get from one side of the city to the other. Big, wide open entrances. And if they were hauling something real heavy that had to go from one side of the city to the other, they were starting to take shortcuts through a place that God had designated to be a holy place. And he's like, you're going to stop doing that. You're not going to do that. That's forbidden. So he was redirecting traffic through the temple complex. But then in verse 17, it says, then he taught. You know, he doesn't just come in and lay a heavy hand and walk out, you know. He taught them. Our Lord explains things to us. If we will listen, if we will give an ear to him, and he says this, Is it not written? Again, he goes to the Bible. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? He's quoting from Isaiah 56, verses 7 and 8. You see it up there on the screen. I'm not going to read it all for you. But notice he says, My house, Jesus asserts his possession. And he says, a house of prayer for all nations. One writer put it this way, prayer is the essence of worship and the temple was where people could come to commune with God and meditate on his mercy or majesty and glory. And then he says, the temple was not only for the Jews, but it was also for all the nations. Anybody that tries to say or make a claim that Christianity is specific to a certain race or culture is lying to you. The Bible ne- never says that. It's for all nations. He says, "But you have made it into a den of thieves, a cave of robbers," as one would say, in another translation. And then he quotes from Jeremiah 7:11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. He came to the temple, and he inspected it that night when he first came. One of the first things he did when he came to the city. God desired that the temple to be the highest place of worship, of teaching and prayer, but instead it was a physical and spiritual chaos. It was full of chaos. And Jesus was going to make sure that they heard directly from God about how they felt about it, how he felt. But what was the atmosphere that angered the Lord so much? Think about it. There was all this buying and selling going on. There was a lot of noise. There was a lot of bickering back and forth for how much a person was going to pay for their sacrifice. There was a lot of animosity from those who traveled so far and now they were being charged exorbitant prices. And you, you, you might know if you go to a market and you see something that's grossly overpriced, you're not often going to be quiet about it. So instead of coming for a, a time of, uh, you know, a worship time, they were, they were sidetracked with issues. It would be like if we all came here on a Sunday and we just kind of kept having fellowship back and forth and then we all kind of left. Never Worship, never pray, never read the word. May it never be. Verse 18. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it. Now, remember, this is a threat to them because Jesus is speaking. He's teaching. And that's a big threat against them. And they heard it and they sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. He could teach so well and so brilliantly that people would stop what they were doing. They would stop arguing and give an ear for what Jesus had to say. And it was astonishing. It was amazing. And when the Lord spoke to your heart, and when he speaks to your heart, you don't really have much to say back. It's astonishing. It's amazing. They feared him because he was a threat to their livelihood. Luke 19.48 says, it says they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. You know, they were supposed to be running the show at the temple. They were supposed to be directing the feast and the Passover, and nobody wanted to hear from them. Generally speaking, the people didn't want to hear from them. When Jesus spoke, they're like, forget you guys. We know you don't love us. We don't know we know that you just lord over us and you're making money off of us. Verse nineteen, When evening had come he went out of the city. This would be his for these couple of days he's gonna he's gonna spend his days in Jerusalem, he's gonna spend his nights back in Bethany. Warren Wiersbe brings up a couple of questions for us, maybe just to think about, okay? Maybe just to examine for ourselves. You know, Jesus was, he says, when the scribes and chief priests heard the report of the Lord's activities, they kept seeking a way to arrest him. Judas would solve the problem for them. He's going to betray the Lord soon. But before you and I quickly condemn the Jewish religious leaders for their sins... We should examine our own ministries to see if perhaps we are making merchandise of the gospel. Do outsiders in our community, these are are questions from Warren Wiersbe—and I think they bear witnessing, they bear hearing. Do outsiders in our community think of our church buildings as houses of prayer? The people in the community that don't attend church, all around, there's many, many churches around here. We are but one. Do people typically think of the churches as houses of prayer? Are all nations welcomed here? You know, are all races and ethnicities welcomed here? Do we as church members flee to church on Sundays in an attempt to cover up our sins? Cover them up, not to maybe receive counsel. Do you and I go to church in order to maintain our reputation or to worship and glorify God? What are are we doing? These are just rhetorical questions that are food for thought for all of us. So if Jesus were to show up in our house, what changes would he make? If he was to come in that door, he wouldn't be able to get in then. He'd have to come in the other way. What changes would he make? These are, I, you know what, there's, there's, there you're going, well, you're the pastor, you should know. <laughs> no, folks, it's all of us. It's just good to think about those things. It's good to think about those things. But what we're seeing here is Jesus was ending his ministry in the temple. He was, he was teaching in the temple. This is where his ministry was going to start to come to an end. It was in his father's house of prayer. It's a place where God's presence dwells in a very special way. And I believe that's true, that's true of us. I mean, we don't get it right every time. We, we, you know, we mess up. There's stuff that goes on, right? Our timing is a little off sometimes. But I do believe that when we gather here, that this is a place where you know you're safe. You know you can pray. You know you can bring your prayers. You know that we're going to teach the Word of God and we're going to exalt Christ. That's our goal. And you guys are a part of that. Every, every person perfectly you know being placed in the house of God. He builds the house. But he was about to complete his life upon the earth, and a glorious ministry was going to fu- be fulfilled by the will of God, perfectly, perfectly, with what he would do. And right before him, what he was looking at on this temple Mount was a picture of the terrible sin for which he was about to die. He had a reminder right there why I'm going to the cross, because of what's happened to this place, what what the nation had done, what the people had done, the condition of the world. The temple itself, where men were supposed to be able to draw close to God, was corrupted by men. It was corrupted. It had become anything but a house of prayer. It was a place place for commercialism and for greed. Jesus was revealing who he was, God incarnate, and he was cleansing the temple. He was proclaiming to all generations, right up to our generation and beyond, that he had the right to determine how the temple was to be used and to purge it of his corruptions. As God's Son, the temple was his dwelling place, the place where the worship of God was to be especially known. Today, we, as bodies, uh, physical bodies, we have a, a temple where we house the Holy Spirit. God has sent his helper, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. And that's his dwelling place. And it's not to be a place of corruption. But what about our boldness? Because it's easy here in a safe place for boldness to take place when the scriptures are being spoken. How about boldness in our witness? When you saw Jesus and how he acted, and when you really study what he was doing, you saw an amazing thing. He was strong in his convictions, but he wasn't arrogant. How can we be the same? Because oftentimes we blow it when we get you know our emotions involved, we get ahead of ourselves, in wanting to state our case if you will and our beliefs and we become arrogant one writer said this Jesus is the one who shows us how to do it we don't necessarily show each other yes we make disciples yes we should we learn from one another but Jesus is the one who disciples us and he says we notice that he stood his ground he asserted himself boldly he refused to sugarcoat his words He defended the truth on the strength of his convictions, but he never treated anybody cruelly. He never modeled an overbearing manner. Although the chief priests and scribes deserved no respect, Jesus nevertheless treated them with respect. Now you and I are increasingly challenged to compromise our beliefs for the sake of pleasing society. Either that or you just turn it all off. That's the, that's the thing, you know. It's like, I just, I just want to hide under a blanket. I'm tired of hearing this culture screaming at me about my convictions, about the truth that I believe. Why do I have to apologize for what I believe? Why do I have to be ashamed what news I watch or what I read for fear of offending somebody? We're tired of it. I'm tired of it. And we're increasingly challenged to compromise our beliefs. For the sake of pleasing society. A society that could care less about you. Look at the condition of things in Jerusalem when he arrived. Compromised faith and commercialism had made the temple into a den of thieves. But you and I need to stand up for what you believe. And when you know the truth, stand up for it and do not give in. Don't give in. But in the process, we need to guard against arrogance. Amen? Another lesson from the fig tree. Again, this is where we have, Jesus is going to finish it up, the sandwich, if you will, verse 20. He says, now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Jesus' curse had now taken its full effect. It was completely destroyed. I mean, there's so much, you know, I'm not going to try and unpack all the, all the ramifications of the nation Israel and the temple and Jerusalem today. We don't have time. We're going to talk quite a bit about that in our sign study. In verse 21, Peter said, remembering, he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered away. Of course it had to be Peter, you know. He had to one, Captain Obvious, <laughs> he had to point it out. Peter was taken back by how fast and how complete the destruction of the fig tree was. Now ironically the temple would be totally destroyed we talked about it a little bit earlier it would be totally destroyed by the Romans in less than 40 years. That picture you saw was going to be you know it would be you'd be down to the bare mount it, itself. It would be only six years after Herod's 70-year improvement project. He started it 70 years prior to A.D. 70. Actually, uh, six years prior to Jesus' birth, if you will. He started in B.C. It was a building improvement project. So, So six years after the final improvement to the project had been made, that's why they call it Herod's Temple, it would be totally destroyed by the Romans. And the fig tree represents Israel as God's covenant people. Remember that. They gave the appearance of life and health, but they failed to bear fruit. The nation became good for nothing because its spiritual and political leaders had long since placed their faith in something other than God. They relied upon treaties with stronger nations and political intrigue against their enemies. Consequently, the nation of Israel became like all of their other godless peers. But let's remember something, because if you stop there, you jump into what's called replacement theology, and now you're saying God's never going to use Israel. Uh, And again, John MacArthur, he he points it out. He says, but this is not the end of Israel's story. And it's going to be an amazing study when we go through the Book of Signs. Paul rhetorically said in Romans 11, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it be never be, for I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. But it is true that there was a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So we're, we're going to learn a lot more about that. But in the future, the redeemed remnant of Israel will look upon me whom they have pierced. That's what's going to happen in the, in the, in the uh the great tribulation, and they will weep bitterly over him like a bitter weeping uh, over a firstborn. Zechariah 12:10. So it's going to get crazy. We, you know, it's going to be, they're going to come back. But right now, they, you know, well, they're a nation. They were created in 19, came back in 1948, which is amazing. But I, I don't want to digress too much. But keep in mind that as, as terrible as this was and as Powerful and strong as the judgment was on the nation Israel and on Jerusalem, God has not done with the nation Israel yet. We don't have a spiritual Israel yet. We have the the people, a rebirth of the flesh of Israel. But that's coming. That's coming at a time, future time. Stay tuned. (laughs) It's in God's timing. Verse 22. So Jesus said to them, in light of all this, in light of the fact of what Peter had said, what does Jesus do? He says, have faith in God. Because Peter's like, look, the, the tree has been withered, and we understand the meaning of the tree compared to the nation Israel. We know the history, uh, and you and I know from history, that both would, the nation would soon be scattered and the temple would be torn down. Jesus wanted them to understand that the miracle of the withered fig tree was a result of a prayer made by faith. He's going to change. He's actually going to take this whole situation and he's going to turn it into how to pray faithfully. Jesus made it clear that prayer must be offered in faith and faith must be in God. Faith is trust, confidence, and reliance upon someone or something. What Jesus was saying was it's now time to trust God. It is now time to trust God because they're corrupt their dead religious system could not satisfy the spiritual hunger of the people, just as a fruitless fig tree couldn't satisfy Jesus' hunger. He says in verse 23, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. I need to explain something here. Uh, most, most people understand that this is not a literal, there's a mountain and you command it into the sea. It's, what, uh, it's kind of a verbal expression. They use the mountain as a figure of speech or kind of like a hyperbole. It really represents any insurmountable problem that you see in life. It's as big as a mountain. You know, we see the giants or the mountains. Uh, Bar- William Barclay wrote this. He said, the phrase about removing mountains was a quite common Jewish phrase. It's the kind of thing they would say often. It was regular and vivid phrase for removing difficulties. You know, so it's just like, man, I got this big problem. Well, they would say, I got a big mountain to conquer. And he says, so if you say to this big problem and not doubt in your heart, you pray without doubting. What are you not doubting? You're not, you're not asking, you're not really questioning your faith because your faith can be very weak sometimes. But you're not doubting God's nature and his power. You're not doubting that he is who he says he is. James 1.6, he says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, For he who doubts is like the wind, the wave of a sea driven and tossed by the wind, but believes those things that will be done. So he says, if you do not doubt in your heart, but you believe those things will be done. When you pray and have confidence to believe and accept that God's power and goodness has accomplished whatever you ask. You guys know what it's like to have sort of like an empty prayer. First, you know, prayer is like Sort of like three stages for us. I'll pray for you, and then you never do. I'll pray for you, and it's sort of (laughs) half-hearted. You don't really believe it's going to accomplish much. And what Jesus is saying, look, when you pray, don't waste your breath not praying with the belief in I, I am the one who I say that I am. Don't pray without faith. Don't doubt. Even though your faith is going to be weak at times. And he goes on, in verse 24, he says, I, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. When you pray in Jesus' name, what are you doing? Well, you're praying in his character. You're praying. You're referring to his person. You're referring to his purpose. And so when you pray in Jesus' name, it's not just something you throw out there in vain. But you've got to realize that your prayers, my prayers, need not to be, greedy or selfish because that's not jesus's nature if you're praying in his name he's not a greedy or selfish person and so when you pray in a greedy and selfish manner thinking you can just get whatever you want you're not really consistent with who he is and james 4 3 he spoke of that he says you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures When you say, God's not hearing my prayers, He's not answering my prayers, well, you need to examine what it is you're asking for. Another thing as we conclude today, when you do come to pray, you need to remove the grudges, you know, the spiritual trip hazards. The last two verses, verse 25, he says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. That's another way to pray in vain, if you will, because you've got something going on. The Lord's not going to be able to respond to your prayer because you're holding a grudge against somebody. That's why it's sort of like a spiritual trip hazard. You've got to get it out of the way. You've got to forgive him. You've got to let it go. When it says forgiving, that means to forgive, to give up and not demanding a debt be paid. You know, whenever you hold on to anger towards somebody else, you're just hurting yourself. You're hurting your spiritual life, you're hurting your character, and you're hurting your physical life as well. So he says to do that, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive. A perfect example of God not hearing your prayers goes for us husbands. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands, likewise... Dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. All of us men married, that should be one of our top. That should be one of our top memory verses. But you'll know when it's not working out and you're angry, you go to complain to God about your wife. (laughs) It's like, man, that just isn't working out here. (laughs) It just doesn't work. Finally, verse 26. If you have a King James or a New King James, you'll have this verse. If you have any other version of the Bible, you won't have this verse, but you'll have a note about this verse. Uh, New Living Translation, NIV, ESV, it gives you a footnote that says, some Greek manuscripts exclude this verse but you need to refer back that the, the truth of the matter is if you don't forgive neither will your father forgive in heaven that's still true even though this verse has been subjugated in some cases because when you go to matthew six fifteen, you notice he says but if you do not forgive men and their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses that's in all the versions So if somebody tries to trip you up with uh, their Bible knowledge to try and prove that the Bible is not true, keep in mind that that is true. But the fact of the matter is, you and I, on the subject of prayer, our refusal to extend grace or forgiveness to others proves that we have not truly received the grace or forgiveness from God. If all we ever want to do is hold grudges against people, and that's our life, and that's what we're known for, We really haven't received His forgiveness in our life. But if we have received God's forgiveness, which comes from being transformed by the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not possible for you and I to withhold forgiveness. We may fight against it, but you're not going to be able to carry it on for very long. Amen? Amen? Lord, we thank you for our time today, and we ask, Father, that you would, you know, we've taken in a lot of information, Lord, and, and so, Lord, I just ask that whatever, whatever I had to say that was important to people that are listening, Lord, that it would, be, would bear much fruit, that the truth of your word would come and transform our lives once again. We, we thank you, Lord, for all that you do. We thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness. And as we follow your footsteps, Lord Jesus, as we see the work that you did, we realize, we recognize that you did it on our behalf as well. That we reap the benefits of the work that you did. And the, this, the fact that you stood boldly and you declared the truth. The fact that it's recorded for us today as, as it's leading you to the cross. You were, you were going to push the envelope to the point of being crucified for our sins where our sins would be forgiven, and then you'll be risen from the dead, where our new life begins, that we would have eternal life. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for all the wisdom that you have and all that you've given us. Go before us today as we go in peace to the world around us, Lord. I'd like to ask you to stand with us And we're going to read Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17, and close in a song after that. But we want to read this together. Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants, and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord.
0: His body bound and drenched in tears They laid him down in Joseph's tomb The entrance sealed by heavy stone Messiah still and all alone Okay. He shall return in robes of white, the blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise
1: us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.